today we are going to do chapter 8 in Hebrews. But you are going to probably read some scripture that not one in a hundred thousand Christians have ever read. And I, I guarantee that there will be some surprises today. Maybe not for everybody, but but I learned a lot putting this lesson together. So we're gonna we're gonna do hopefully the entirety of chapter eight. And in, in chapter seven, if you remember what he was the writer was talking about in chapter seven, he was using scripture to prove what attributes the high priest of the new covenant would have to have. And his main text was that text from Psalm 110 that talked about, to Jesus, talked about you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Remember that? And how we learned that that was like a a really major oath, one of, you know, five or six in the whole Bible, the whole history of Israel that God had made. And, And yet in Hebrews, it's just about the only place you ever hear it talked about. So the things that that high priest had to have according to the research that the writer of Hebrews did, was he needed to be from a different priestly order than the Levites. Okay, So he wasn't going to be a descendant of Aaron. And that was to fulfill the oath of God that he would be in the order of Melchizedek. He needed to continue his high priestly office forever. That also was in that same prophecy, that you'll be a priest forever. Then our high priest needed to be somebody who is holy, blameless, you know, Apart from sin, but somebody who could understand temptation and sin. All right. And, and, and it needed to be somebody who would sympathize with us in a sense that he wouldn't be too lenient on us, you know, but he also would not be too harsh on us. And so Jesus just fit every single one of those requirements. And that's where the writer of Hebrews picks up in chapter 8. So in Hebrews 8, verse 1 and 2. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Well, stop right there. What what sanctuary? What tabernacle are we talking about here? It says the true one set up by the Lord, not by man. Now, the first thing we want to know is... What is he talking about sanctuary and tabernacle? Do those, you know, what do those terms mean? Uh, if you look in your scripture references at Exodus 25, 8 and 9, you'll see a verse where the two terms sanctuary and tabernacle are used interchangeably. So in this verse it says, Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So right there, obviously, the word sanctuary was referring to the whole sanctuary, okay, including the the tent part, okay, the holy of holies as well as the holy place. But in other verses, the term sanctuary is used to refer only to the holy of holies, that part where the Ark of the Covenant was. And what those, here's an example of those kind of verses in Leviticus 16, 2 and 3. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So there, 
obviously the word sanctuary is being used to refer only to the place behind the curtain where the Shekinah glory rests. And when I say Shekinah glory, I, I don't want to confuse anybody. The word she, That phrase is not in the Bible anywhere. But it is a common term used to describe that cloud of fire, pillar of smoke, the presence, the physical manifestation of the presence of God with the Israelites. Okay? It's the, it's the glory that would, that would lead them and that would tell them when to stop. And when they stopped, that glory actually sat down on the mercy seat, which is also called the atonement cover, on the Ark of the Covenant between the two cherubim. So that is called Shekinah glory because the, the Hebrew word Shekinah, I think it basically means dwelling. I think it literally means dwelling. So that's where that's coming from. So if I say glory of the Lord or Shekinah glory, I'm talking all about the same thing. So now remember that Aaron as high priest could go in the Holy of Holies, but the other priests could not, right? Uh, and, and in Exodus 35, 19, there's, there's a verse that says um, that they are supposed to make wo- woven garments for ministering in the sanctuary. And that those garments include both the sacred garments for Aaron, the high priest, and the garments for his son when they serve as priests. So their sanctuary means the whole tabernacle because it's referring to garments that are used in both places. So what that tells us is that when we want to know what they're talking about when they say sanctuary and tabernacle, we're going to have to take it from the context. Okay, it's not we're not going to be able to tell from the words. So the writer of Hebrews in the first couple of verses of chapter eight seems to me to be using those terms synonymously. Okay, he says he says that we have a high priest who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by men. Well. Just from that phrase, we can tell he's talking about a spiritual reality and not a physical reality. That it's talking about, and we know that it's talking about spiritual reality in heaven because that's where Jesus is. He's in heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God. That's where he is. Therefore, if he's serving in a tabernacle made by the Lord, it must be in heaven. Now, that raises a whole lot of questions for me as to what does that tabernacle look like? Why is there a tabernacle in heaven? Okay, so let's look at um, Hebrews 8, 3 through 5, because we should be able to tell a whole lot about that heavenly tabernacle by looking at the earthly copy. Okay, that's why we have the earthly copy. For one thing, the word tabernacle means dwelling place. Literally, it, it's, it's a tent, a, a residence, a dwelling place. And Jesus, as our high priest, is serving where God dwells. And right now, God dwells in heaven, not literally physically in a tabernacle on earth right now. He's dwelling in heaven. So continue with verses 3 through 5 in chapter 8. Every high priest is anointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one, he's talking about Jesus, for Jesus to have something to offer. That So it's saying Jesus had to have something to offer in the heavenly tabernacle. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. God said, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. God's intent was to show us something about the heavenly tabernacle 
by looking at the earthly one. So on earth, the Levitical priests are men who offer gifts required by the law. They serve in the earthly temple. It's a copy of what's in heaven. Jesus, however, as our high priest, is also appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. But he's a mediator of a new covenant, right? So his gifts and sacrifices are going to be different than the earthly priests. Just like Jesus is from the tribe of Judah and not from the tribe of Levi. Okay, there are differences. His sacrifice is different, different than theirs. His sacrifice was once for all. And just as Jesus' sacrifice is better than theirs, his ministry as our intercessor is better than theirs. And that's where the writer of Hebrews goes next in verse 6. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. So not only do we have a new covenant, we have new promises. Better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. And now he's going to give you his kind of sermon text for today. With these Hebrews, this is his Old Testament text to prove to them there is a new covenant. He says, God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It says both because at the time this prophecy was given, they were split into two kingdoms, northern and southern. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. And, and immediately this begins a long quote from the prophet Jeremiah. It's from Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 41 or something. It starts at 31. Jeremiah was a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom, during its last 40 years. Now, about 100 years prior, Israel had already fallen to the Assyrians. So the northern kingdom doesn't exist anymore. And all that exists is, is Jude, basically Benjamin and Judah, which are the Judah, the southern kingdom. And poor Jeremiah has, has had a really long career as a prophet and has had to just do the most ridiculous things, dress up in costumes and go talk to the king and 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 at the at at this point, um, Judah has been under attack for years. This last siege of the the last the fall of Jerusalem took took place in 586 or 587 BC, but they had been attacked since 605 BC. Okay, so you're talking a period of 20 years or more that they have been under attack and and. The King Nebuchadnezzar would come and just grab chunks of people and carry them off into captivity. Okay, so we're down to the last 40 years. And we're actually even closer than that. Because now it's only going to be a few months before Jerusalem is going to be overrun by King Nebuchadnezzar. The temple is going to be destroyed and everything in it carried off. So the city is under siege when Jeremiah receives this prophecy. And not only that. Jeremiah is in jail because he keeps prophesying that the city's going to fall. And so he's in jail for treason. <laughs> and, 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 you know, every once in a while, the king will let him come out and then he'll get thrown back in. And he's, he's having a horrible time. So the, the future of Jeremiah and the Jewish people has never been bleaker. And Jeremiah has consistently 
prophesied, along with the other Old Testament prophets, that the Lord is letting this happen to them in fulfillment of the Old Covenant. We read back in Deuteronomy when Moses first gave it. He said, if you don't follow the law, all these horrible things are going to happen to you, including you're going to be carried into captivity. Well, it's payback time, okay? It's fixing to happen. But in this prophecy that Jeremiah says, you see the Lord just bearing his heart to Israel and showing how he loves them. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the, the parent that is having to discipline a child, you know, a beloved child, harshly. It's a, it's a husband who has, has, is dealing with an unfaithful wife. This, is, this section of prophecy of Jeremiah is so poignant and so touching that it has come to be known as the book of consolation to the, to the Jewish people. It sustained them through their captivity in Babylon. And it's quoted in Hebrews 8, 10 through 12. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, meaning after they go into captivity, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Just kind of circle that phrase. That's that from Adam has been God's intent. And, and you are going to see that lots of places where God talks about the old covenant and the new covenant. This is the kernel in it. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So this excerpt that the writer of Hebrews slaps in here is just part of the prophecy. And I want to back you back through. We're not going to read the whole prophecy. I'm just going to kind of tell you the elements of it. The prophecy in Jeremiah starts in verse 3 of Jeremiah 30. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people, Israel and Judah, back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their forefathers to possess. So that's the introduction. That's the framework of this prophecy. It has to do with when Israel and Judah come back from captivity. And it goes on to describe in great detail the second coming of Christ and the events of the millennial reign. So if you go back and read through Jeremiah 30 and 31, you'll see first it talks about how how this regathering of Israel will happen during the great tribulation when Israel is enslaved to foreigners. The Lord is going to rescue them and completely destroy the nations that enslaved them. Israel is going to then be is going to be during the tribulation disciplined for her sins. But when the Lord comes, he's going to heal and restore her. He is going to raise up a human leader from among them to be their shepherd and prince. This is in addition to Jesus, who's king over the whole world. Right? There's a whole lot of prophecy that talks about a, a, a human leader that's going to be raised up from the line of David to be their prince. God and Israel will finally be in fellowship. It says, so you will be my people. I will be your God. I will come to give rest to Israel. I have loved you with an everlasting love. 
And then it talks about how the Lord is going to gather the Jews from all over the world, a huge throng, literally crying tears of repentance and joy will be gathered at Mount Zion. And the Lord says, I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. And it's right there in the prophecy that this excerpt that's in Hebrews occurs. Okay, that's how we know what time period that it relates to the millennial reign, that it relates to the second coming of Christ. And right after this prophecy about how he's going to, you know, write their his law in their minds and hearts and, and they're going to be his people and, and no longer will they have to have Bible teachers because everybody will know the Lord, okay? Then he says, Jerusalem will be rebuilt and will never again be restored, destroyed. And then there's this little whole chapter section at the beginning of the next chapter where Jeremiah kind of in an aside talks to the king of Jerusalem at that point and tells him exactly how the Babylonians are going to capture the city. Okay. But it's at that point that the Lord tells Jeremiah to go buy a piece of land, even though the city's under siege, everything's worthless. People are starving to death. Go buy a piece of land as proof that the Lord will bring Israel back someday to physical Jerusalem. So that gives us a hint that the Lord's talking physical here. Okay. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to reverence me. So they will never turn away from me. And at that point, the prophecy says, all the nations of the earth will hear of what the Lord does and quote, will be in awe and tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for Jerusalem. So then I want to read you Jeremiah 33, 15 through 18. I think it's in your scripture references. This is part of that whole prophecy, train of prophecy. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. Now, anytime you see the word branch in Old Testament prophecy, it's almost always taken to mean the Messiah. Okay. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which Jerusalem will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man, a man sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And now look at this part. Nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, burnt grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. Now, that can't be Jesus because he's not of the tribe of Levite. He's of the tribe of Judah. So this prophecy is saying that during the millennial reign, the Levitical priests and system of sacrifices is going to be reinstated. Okay, so this is after the second coming. This is while Christ is reigning as king on earth. Is this a mistake? Did the Lord have a slip of the tongue here? Did he forget that Jesus did a once and for all sacrifice? Can't be, can it? The problem has to be our perception. We need to take a look at this. Now, if the sacrificial system is to be reinstated, that's a big deal. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. We would expect it to see it prophesied elsewhere in scripture, not just in one verse. Remember, that's one of our rules. 
Okay, if something seems like really out in left field, we need to have a corroborating scripture somewhere. Well, believe it or not, it is prophesied in great detail and at great length in a book that modern Christians almost never read. And that book is Ezekiel. The prophecy of Ezekiel. He was a prophet during the Babylonian captivity at the same time as Jeremiah, though though Jeremiah was in Jerusalem and Ezekiel was in Babylon by this time. He had been taken in one of the earlier deportations. Ezekiel prophesies in great detail about a very physical, humongous temple. And the temple he prophesies, I mean, he has measurements of not only the temple, of the rooms in the kitchen, of the rooms where the priests get dressed, of the, you know, the door jams are measured. I mean, it is way literal, <laughs> okay? And and what he describes is so big, it could not fit on Mount Zion as we know it now. So a lot of Christians just throw it out and say, oh, therefore it must just be figurative, you know? Well, if you went and read your prophecies, you would know that Mount Zion gets dressed, a drastic makeover at the second coming. Physically, the mountain like splits in two and all kinds of things happen. It is, is no problem at all for this gigantic temple to physically exist in the second, in the second coming, at the second coming. So throughout the history of Israel, there have only been a few temples. The very, Josephus, remember we read in an earlier lesson, said there was some kind of a temple that Melchizedek built. Remember that? And we don't know anything about the description of that temple. And it's never counted. I've never seen any scholar count that as a temple. It should be, but it's, it's never been counted, okay? So the, they start counting after the law was giving, given, okay? So you have the tabernacle, which was a precursor to Solomon's temple, right? And so people generally count that as one. The one that Moses. Moses built the tabernacle. That was the portable tent. Then David wanted to make it permanent, and God said, no, you're, you're a soldier, and I'm not going to let you do it, but I'll let Solomon build one for me. Okay. Well, we have the physical description in the Bible of the measurements of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple is described in 1 Kings 6.1, and I'm not going to read it, but it was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. So it's a 60 by 20. Okay. Now, Solomon's temple was destroyed at the time of Jeremiah, okay, and Ezekiel. When, in 586, when King Nebuchadnezzar finally overran Jerusalem, he raised it. Okay? I mean, as in raised, as in down to the ground, obliterated it, okay? So it didn't exist. So temple number one went bye-bye, okay, in 586 B.C. The next temple that got built is called Zerubbabel's temple, and it was built by the remnant of Jews who returned during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, who were allowed to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That temple is named after the guy who was put in charge of the rebuilding process. Zerubbabel. Uh, you know what? I don't remember which year it was, but it's in Ezra 6, 3, and there's a timeline of when that was in our um, Daniel study because it's from the, re- the order from the time that the order to rebuild that temple was given is when we begin marking the 77s right. 
Remember that? Okay. So Zerubbabel's temple is talked about in Ezra 6 and in Ezra 3. Now it says there that it was 60 cubits by 60 cubits, which, which, which would make it bigger than Solomon's. Remember it was 60 by 20? Well, scholars believe that, that, that the 60 by 60 measurement given for Zerubbabel's temple included the whole courtyard. And the reason we think that is because in Ezra 3.12, it says that many of the older priests who had seen Solomon's temple, when they came back and saw how small Zerubbabel's temple was going to be, they cried. That's what it says. So that's why we think the 60 by 60 must have included the whole courtyard, okay? Because we know that Zerubbabel's temple was significantly smaller than Solomon's temple. Zerubbabel's temple survived to the time of Christ. And then Herod basically remodeled all over the top of it. So you never would see Zerubbabel's temple again. Herod just built his right on top of it. Now, Herod was grandiose. This was a temple to Herod, not a temple to God, if you ask me, from all, all descriptions. And it, it was 100 cubits wide, 100 cubits long, and 100 cubits high. It was gigantic. Okay, it's the biggest ever. Well, it was begun around 20 BC, and they started using it even before it was finished. And they kept working on it for all the next, you know, 50 years. And that was the temple that Jesus ministered in, was Herod's temple. That was the temple that was standing. That's the temple he, drew, drew, he drove the money changers out of. And that's the temple that was destroyed when the Romans conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD. Okay. So that temple is fixing to go away. Well, there is no temple. Is that the one where the current wall is, is a portion of? That's, it's, that's what the whole Temple Mount argument is about. <laughs> okay, so now there is no temple in Jerusalem. Okay, there hasn't been since the Romans ran the city over. And we're going to talk more about these temples in, in another week or two. But, but um, we know from Daniel 9.27 that a temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem sometime before the Great Tribulation. Because the passage in Daniel 9.27 says the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel at the beginning of his seven-year rule. But that after three and a half years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and he will desecrate the temple. So uh, I, I think I put that in the scripture handout. So 927 says, He, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. And in the middle of the seven, that seven years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on one wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And then in Daniel 11, 31 and 32, it says his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. So we know that the Levitical system will be reestablished sometime at or prior to the tribulation. Okay? Because there have to be offerings and sacrifices going on for the Antichrist to do his bit. Okay? But even more important, so that's our four temples, okay? So so we've got the, the Tabernacle and Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, Herod's temple, 
and then you have the temple, the tribulation temple. Okay, is even more important than those physical differences in size, though, is the spiritual difference because that's what gives us the clue to Ezekiel's temple, which doesn't match any of these other descriptions. The original tent-like tabernacle and the first temple, Solomon's temple, were the physical dwelling place of God. That's where that Shekinah glory was described as coming down always. But no other temple could make that claim. Not Zerubbabel's, not Herod's, not the tribulation temple. Because we know from the Bible that the Shekinah glory does not come back until Ezekiel's temple which happens in the millennial reign. So look at um, uh, Exodus 40:33. It describes when the, when the Shekinah glory first came. Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's the Shekinah glory. Moses could not even enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. Now, when Solomon dedicated his temple, there's a record of the Shekinah glory entering the Holy of Holies. Look at 1 Kings 8, 6 through 11. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark and overshadowed the Ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place, and they are still there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And there it stayed until the downfall of Judah to the Babylonians. Now, Ezekiel was a young man from Judah at the time of the sieges on Jerusalem. And like Daniel, he was one of the first ones carried off into captivity. Daniel went in the first series of people that were captured. Ezekiel was in the second series of people that were captured. But in captivity, while in captivity, the Lord showed Ezekiel what was happening in Jerusalem. And now let's look at Ezekiel 8, 2 through 6. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. And the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven. And in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me, and that's not the, the one that was talked about in the time of the Antichrist. This is, this is the one that provoked the Lord at the time of Babylon, okay? This is, this is the one that helped, helped 
promote Israel's downfall in 586. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, that's the Shekinah glory, as in the vision I had seen in the plain, which is an earlier prophecy he had seen. Then he said to me, Son of man, look towards the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here? Things that will drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see things that are even more detestable. And so then the Lord takes Ezekiel to see all the idolatry and secret sin of the leaders of Israel during that time. And then in Ezekiel chapter 9, he sees something quite remarkable. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, Bring the guards of the city here, each with a weapon in his hand. And these are the spiritual guards. You know how we've talked about angels having you know, geographic responsibility. These are spiritual, I presume angels, who, have, who guard the city of Jerusalem, or who, or who did at the time of the Babylonian War. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side, and they came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the Lord of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been. Remember, it sits between the cherubim and the Holy of Holies. The glory of the Lord went up from above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. And as I listened, he said to the others, Follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men, maidens, women, and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. And then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go. So they went out and began killing throughout the city. And that is the spiritual picture of the physical events that happened in 586 B.C. when the glory of the Lord left the temple of Solomon. And he left not because King Nebuchadnezzar was coming. He left because of the sin and idolatry of Israel. Now, the Lord, as he leaves, the Lord commands utter defilement of the temple. And as the prophecy continues, the vision continues in Ezekiel chapter 10, the Lord causes burning coals from his throne to be scattered over Jerusalem. Ezekiel 10, verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. And while I watched, the cherubim spread their wings, rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. And, you know, we've looked at the wheels of the cherubim in other classes. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was above him. So the Lord is on the threshold at the east gate. And he's getting ready to leave. And he turns around and he has one more thing to say to Israel. Ezekiel eleven seventeen through 23. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. 
I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And here it comes. They will be my people and I will be their God. Finally, but as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. And that's how the glory of the Lord left the temple in Jerusalem. Then the Lord goes on talking to Ezekiel in chapter 16 with a, it's a really poignant retelling of the unfaithfulness of, of Israel. And, and he talks to Israel as if she were a wife who has become a prostitute. And, but at the very end of this whole passage in Ezekiel sixteen fifty nine through 63 is an important passage. We need to look at that. It says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Be that, read that new covenant. Okay. So I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. Then when I make atonement for you for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your, your humiliation. Now, think about this. The Lord says there he's going to establish his new covenant with Israel, right? When does that happen? Does, did it happen at the first coming? No, they rejected him. Remember? They are not ashamed. I don't see ashamed happening. <laughs> okay? The Bible is full of prophecies about how the new covenant doesn't happen until the Lord gathers back the remnant of Israel from all over the world that happens at the second coming. It's an event that happens at the beginning of the millennial reign. So if you look at the sequence of events in verse 63 that we just read, it says then, okay, I'm going to make, I'm going to make the new covenant with you and then I will make atonement for you. And that, I believe, is the explanation for the reestablishment of the sacrificial system in the millennial reign. Because he's going to make a new covenant with Israel at the second coming. Well, we, have, as Christians, have already been introduced to the new covenant, right? We've been grafted in. Jesus has sacrificed once and for all. Christians aren't going to stand in judgment. I mean, there's this whole lot of stuff in the New Testament about that. But Israel hasn't got there yet. Okay, Israel rejected that covenant at that point. They rejected him as the Messiah. And they're not going to figure out that he's the Messiah till he comes the second time. And God says, then I'm going to make atonement for you. Now, it's not a bringing back of the old covenant. But it is, according to scripture, a ritual of atonement. Which is a ritual of, of covering of sin, of repentance, Right? Okay, related to Israel entering the new covenant. And the best comparisons that I've seen, the best examples have been that compared this sacrificial system, this ritual of atonement, to our Christian communion service. Okay, we're not crucifying Christ over and over again, but we are 
participating in it. You, you see what we what we do in communion. It's a recognition. It's a coming to Him again, okay, and laying down our our humanity because we are human. In the millennial reign, the Israelites are they're still human beings, okay. I'm, and and there's sin out in the world. Sin doesn't go away. I mean, people still don't do right. Okay, okay. Um, so, but but this whole thing, I'm just trying to get you to think about the sequence of events because we're coming to the passage in Ezekiel that talks about the reestablishment of the sacrificial system at that time in Ezekiel 20, 32 through 38. And it's talking, this is occurring in Ezekiel at the point where the Jews are being regathered to Jerusalem during the millennial reign. And God says in 2036, As I judged your fathers in the desert of the land of Egypt, so I will judge you, declares the sovereign Lord. I will take note of you as you pass under my rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge you of those who revolt and rebel against me. Although I will bring them out of the land where they are living, they will not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Go and serve your idols, every one of you. But afterward, you will surely listen to me and no longer profane my holy name with your gifts and idols. For on my holy mountain, the high mountain of Israel, declares sovereign Lord, there in the land, the entire house of Israel will serve me, and there I will accept them. There I will require your offerings and your choice gifts along with your holy sacrifices. I don't see how you can read that as anything but after the second coming. It didn't happen at the first coming. Is The whole entire house of Israel is not serving the Lord, and he has not accepted him. They rejected him. So there I will require, there on Mount Zion, I will require your offerings, your choice gifts, along with your holy sacrifices. I will accept you as fragrant incense when I bring you out from the nations and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will show myself holy among you in the sight of the nations. That is pure second coming prophecy. Okay. Well, then that just all the Christians start bouncing up and down in the seats, you know, hands up in the air. But, 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 but Jesus said, okay, well, let's go back and look at what Jesus said. Look at Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Notice what he says is needed to fulfill the law. There is a need to fulfill the law to accomplish its purpose. What was the purpose of the law? We will be his people. I will be, I will be your God. Okay. At the, at the bottom, that's what it was for. And when does it say it will be fulfilled? It's right in the middle of verse 18. When heaven and earth disappear. When do heaven and earth disappear? At the end of the thousand year reign. That's when heaven and earth disappear. And the eternal order comes, right? 
It's at that point that the path of the Christians and the Jews converges. Okay? And we're all the same. Until then, our paths have been and will be different. Okay? And so we're talking here about the path that Israel is taking. Okay? Different than the path the, the church has taken. Okay? And when you try to mix those up, you get all balled up. Okay? So the answer for most Christians is to discount all the Israel prophecies. A lot of people say, well, Israel messed it up and all those Israelite prophecies apply to the church. Well, they can't be studying the same prophets I'm studying if they think that because it's very clearly different paths. Okay, Same God. So heaven and earth, when they disappear at the end of the thousand years, that's when the law will be completely fulfilled. It didn't happen at the cross. So during the entire millennial reign of Christ on earth, there will be a need to continue to fulfill the original purpose and goal of the law. Now this is for Israel. Read for Israel in there, okay? Apparently, God's design for doing this includes the establishment of a temple and a new sacrificial system. And that it will be a sacrificial system that will have a lot of richness and symbolism and it will be a blessing for the world and for Israel. Perhaps it's through this new sacrificial system that Israel will finally understand what Jesus did. You know, why would God not meet them where they are and explain it to them in terms they understand? Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28. You're getting a, you're getting, you're, we're hop skipping and jumping through Ezekiel and hitting, hitting the high points because it's really important. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations, that's the Gentiles, everybody else, right? will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. That would pretty much do it. <laughs> okay? I mean, Israel has completely abdicated their role as priests to the Gentiles. You know? They were intended to be a nation of priests. And they never stepped up. But he says, after the second coming, it's going to happen. Verse 24, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Sounds like the baptism to me. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. And then in verse 33 of the same chapter, on the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. Okay, again, that's not first coming stuff. Then, look what happens. The Lord isn't just bringing back the Jews who are alive at the time. He's going to resurrect the dead ones. Look at Ezekiel 37, 12 through 14. 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Has that happened yet? No. I, I don't see how you could read Ezekiel and think what some people think. You know, it just you just sit back and, and your mouth hangs open, you know, when you hear some of the explanations. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Verses 23 and 28 in Ezekiel 37. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses. For I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. There it is again. (laughs) You think they're going to get the message? My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws. Follow my laws, there's the law, and be careful to keep my decree. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever, and and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. This David is 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 a mandated, the line of David. This is, you know, fulfillment of some of the Old Testament prophecy. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. There's the sanctuary. That's Ezekiel's temple. That's the one he's talking about. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Now, David and my servant David and David's line are mentioned throughout these prophecies and people get them all confused because Jesus does reign forever and is a descendant of the Old Testament King David, okay? And that fulfills, Jesus by himself fulfills a whole lot of those prophecies in the Old Testament. But the prince mentioned by Ezekiel is a physical Jewish prince, during the time of the millennial kingdom. And he's raised up by God to be a shepherd and a pastor to his people. And this will fulfill a lot of other prophecies that aren't, that don't fit Jesus. Okay. Um, he, he will be raised up from among the Jews who are alive at that time. And you know how we know that is from Ezekiel 46, 16 through 18. Because it tells us he will have sons. Who he will who will inherit his land and his property when he dies. So this David has to be somebody who can die. Therefore, he can't be a resurrected David because we would have what imperishable bodies, right? When we're resurrected, it has to be somebody who's alive at the time who has a perishable body because he's going to die. People do die during the thousand year reign. The people with the imperishable bodies don't, but other people do. Because remember we read prophecies about how their lifespan is greatly lengthened and if you die at the age of 100, it's considered young. But, you know, they may live, you know, 200 years, but they do die during the thousand-year reign. So look at Ezekiel 46, 16 through 18. If the prince makes a gift from his inheritance to one of his sons, it will also belong to his descendants. It is to be their property by inheritance. So right there it says he's going to have sons. And and my understanding of the you know resurrected body is we don't marry and have children. Remember what Jesus said all about that? Okay. 
If, however, he makes a gift from his inheritance to one of his servants, the servant may keep it until the year of freedom, which would be the year of, you know, the whole year of Jubilee, the, you know, seven year, 50 year, remember studying that in, in Daniel. Then it will revert to the prince. His inheritance belongs to his sons only. It is theirs. The prince must not take any of the inheritance of the people, driving them off their property. He is to give his sons their inheritance out of his own property. So none of my people will be separated from his property. Now that does not sound figurative to me. <laughs> that sounds pretty literal, doesn't it? I mean, it has to do, a whole bunch of Ezekiel has to do with exactly how the land is going to get divided up among the Israelites, you know, during the second, second reign. So from that, we know that this prince who is of the line of David and whose name may well be David, okay, because he calls him David, my servant, is the prince that is raised up at the time of the second coming. There's even talk in the Bible, I didn't give you the references, but, but there's, there's a, a place where it says, when you build Ezekiel's temple, when you build this new temple, close the, I think it's the eastern gate. And nobody's allowed to come in that gate because the Lord left by that gate and the Lord's going to come back in by that gate. And the, the prince only can even go over there, but he has to come in from the north gate to get there and leave, leave by the north gate. So, so when we read about the Jerusalem temple, remember, the glory of the Lord departed from the east gate. That's where he left from. And when Christ comes, he's coming from the east, the Bible says. Remember? So it's just really cool, you know, how it all fits together. So, as the Jews are gathered back to Zion, they're brought into the new covenant and judged, which that's an, another point, that the church doesn't get judged, okay? But the Jews are passing under... God's rod as he counts them and brings them in and judges them, okay? Like a, a shepherd would let sheep pass under and say, nope, you're not my sheep. Yes, you're my sheep, okay? That was how they did that, this shepherd talk. But the Jews who are still rebellious are not going to be allowed to enter the land of Israel. But everybody who will, who are not, who's not rebellious, will be allowed to enter Zion. And there the Lord will require them to bring offerings, gifts, and holy sacrifices. And this is the act of contrition and faith that the Lord will require from the Jews in the millennial kingdom. Now, it's definitely not the old sacrificial system, nor the old temple. Ezekiel, in chapters 40 through 43, shows the new temple in great detail. The courtyard, the adjoining rooms, the furnishings, the decorations, even the layout of everything around it. Okay, It looks nothing whatever like any of the other temples. For one thing, it's much larger. It's 100 cubits square. That's about a mile square. That's how big this thing is. Inside is a huge compound that's 50 miles square. And the furnishings are different. For one thing, in the Holy of Holies, there is no Ark of the Covenant in Ezekiel's temple. And that was prophesied in Jeremiah also. So here I'm showing you things in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel. I'm going to show you something in Isaiah. I mean, this is not just in one place in the Bible. Look at Jeremiah 3, 15 through 17. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. That would be the king, new King David plus his you know, people, teachers that he raises up. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, Men will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord 
and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of, the, of their evil hearts. In fact, in Ezekiel 41.23, he tells us that the new temple will not have a veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. It will have double doors. And it makes me wonder, is that to make permanent the rip in the veil from Christ? Is that because the doors are going to be flung open? It's not going to have a curtain separating it. It's going to have big double doors that open in the middle. And just as Ezekiel saw the Shekinah glory depart from the east gate of Solomon's temple, he sees the Shekinah glory return to the millennial temple. And that's in Ezekiel 43, 1 through 7. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east. And I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. It almost makes me cry to think about being there. You know, just imagine that. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. And then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. And he said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the places for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. And it's from this that we know the Shekinah glory never entered Zerubbabel's temple after the Babylonian captivity. And it never entered Herod's temple that Christ knew and it will never enter the temple at the time of the tribulation because it left Solomon's temple and it's not coming back till Jesus comes a second time. Now Ezekiel is shown all the new requirements for sacrifices and offerings and the feast days even to be instituted in the millennial temple. The sacrifices and offerings it says are for the purpose of atonement both for the house of Israel and the temple itself due to the presence of anyone who might sin unintentionally. Okay. Ezekiel 45, 15. As one sheep is to be taken from every flock of 200 from the well-watered pastures of Israel, these will be used for the grain offerings, burnt offerings, and fellowship offerings to make atonement for the people, declares the sovereign Lord. All the people of the land will participate in this special gift for the use of the prince in Israel. It will be the duty of the prince to provide the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the festivals, the new moons, and the Sabbaths, at all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He will also provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, and fellowship offerings to make atonement for the house of Israel. Now, not only are there differences in these sacrifices, if you go through and compare the sacrifices that the Lord showed Ezekiel for the second for the millennial temple to the sacrifices in the old system, there 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 are differences, okay, in how often they're done and what animals are used and things like that. But there's also some very interesting differences in the priesthood. Ezekiel is very clear in his prophecy that most Levites who are gathered back from the ends of the world will be unfit to serve in the Holy of Holies. Only those who are circumcised Levites who descend from the family of Zadok will be allowed to serve in the Holy of Holies. 
the other Levites will be allowed to serve in the rest of the temple. Zadok was a, a priest, a high priest of, of, of the line of, you know, he's a Levite, but, but, he was, but it was a family. Zadok is a family within the, within the tribe who served at the time of the Civil War during David's time. And, um, and, and they remained faithful when the others did not. And so the, the priests of the tribe of Zadok are going to be allowed to serve in the Holy Holies. And, but what's interesting is it doesn't say one of them, the head of the tribe, will be the high priest. It says all of them will be able to serve in the Holy of Holies. That's a big difference, right? In fact, in Ezekiel, there's no mention of a high priest at all. Which makes me wonder, is that because Jesus is there? Jesus is going to be here, you know? And he's got to be participating in this somehow. All right, He is the big Jew with the capital J, J right? <laughs> so he, he com- in, him, in his person, he combines the church and Israel. He's got to have a role. <laughs> There's another very big difference. It's prophesied in Isaiah. I promised you a a passage from Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel about 100 years before um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and and these others at the end. Isaiah 66, 19. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, the Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant lands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. And they will proclaim my glory among the nations. And they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. On horses, in chariots, and wagons, on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. The Lord is going to pick people who are not Levites, Jews who are not Levites, to become Levites and minister in in the new temple in the millennial reign. Some people even take that to mean that, that there will be Gentiles, but I don't think that's what it says. It says all your brothers, which to me means Jews. And it, this whole thing doesn't even make sense when you think of, of it from a Gentile point of view. You know, the Gentiles are on the whole church path, okay? This is, this is about the Jews. And then Ezekiel, this is your last quote from Ezekiel, chapter forty-eight, thirty-five. And the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. And that's actually a, a play on words in the Hebrew. What he's saying in Hebrew is the name of Jerusalem will be changed from Yerushalayim to Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. See how similar they sound. When the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah's book of consolation to the Hebrews Christians, to these Hebrews he's talking to, he, that book of consolation was the kernel, the nutshell, the meat inside of that whole prophecy. So when he quotes it to him, it brings that whole prophecy to mind. Just because we're ignorant Gentiles, we don't get it, okay? But we have to go back and read the whole thing, okay, to get it. But to these Hebrew Christians, they understood that he meant all of this, okay? That he was talking about this entire time period. They were living, in fact, in a time of persecution. They thought it was entirely possible that the, they were in the tribulation, 
How were they to know otherwise, right? Okay. So, so that's why when Jesus showed up in the first place, so many of them thought he might be the Messiah, that he was going to be, the, and did all those miracles. They thought he was the one who was going to come and destroy all their enemies, gather them back. Everybody's going to live fat, dumb, and happy, you know? And that's why they got so mad when he refused to be militant. That's why they switched from the Hosanna, hurrah, hallelujah, here comes our king, to crucify him in the space of a few days. So now let's read to the end of Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 10. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. <laughs> 